Good morning. Remember phones with cords? <laughs> Anybody born after like 2000 will tell you about that sometime. So, um, also, don't you wish you could just, it was that easy? Just walk around with scissors and just go, ah, we disagree, so we'll get to that in just a minute. But I'd like to take a moment, I know we just did with the video, <clears throat> but I'd like for us to pause for a minute because this is a weekend that we often associate with barbecues and a day off and maybe a, a weekend getaway, and that's all there. But this weekend also is, is very significant because, and I'm not even up here to make a political stance, um, it's, it's the reminder that we all need every single year at this time that the sacrifice of so many who have gone before us really serves, especially for us as followers of Jesus, to point us to his sacrifice on our behalf. And so will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, um, we can't possibly know every name that went and defended this country and, and wouldn't come home. Um, but Lord, we know that you are a God who in your word, you promise you capture our tears, you capture them and you save them. And so Lord, we, uh, we know that you hold all of it. You hold our nation in your hands and you have, um, for far longer than we're even aware of. And so for the sacrifice of those who went before us in defending our country, we, we praise you because it points us, it points us to what you did on our behalf at the cross And so, Lord, keep us coming back to that. We pray this weekend comfort on every family that lost somebody under those circumstances. But, Lord, we also ask you to keep us pointed back at you and your incredible, incredible love for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I... um, I want, for a moment, I just want to talk this morning. We've been talking about um, staying power. And we're going through 2 Corinthians because really what 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians points out is that we have a God, and this won't be a surprise to any of you, we have a God who has incredible staying power. I mean, when you just think back over centuries and centuries and centuries, you, you know, our world changes and he remains. He remains the same and what he's up to remains the same. Now, it, it's easy to think about, yeah, that's, that's his thing, but you know what he did at the cross and at the empty tomb, you know what he did? He gave us staying power. He said, to those who have trusted their lives to Jesus Christ, I am now giving my Holy Spirit. And it's staying power. Now, I know none of that's a surprise to you. Here's the surprise, and here's the thing that often can trip us up. When we come across something, when we come across something that uh, we're not sure how we're going to stay in there for and there's one area that 2 Corinthians chapter 7 really points at, and we'll be there this morning, that, uh, that has the, it probably has the most power of anything to just knock us off course and cause us to want to just do that scissors thing, just cut and run. And I'll give you a hint, it's not circumstances. I mean, if anything, you think about your life and you think about those around you, when circumstances take a turn, and it's not what we expected, and it's not uncomfortable, oftentimes you see people lean into their faith in Jesus. It's not circumstances. And i got to be honest, it's not even God. And we alluded to this a little bit last week, but when you listen to people and something has gone south and it's just not working for them, rarely do they point at God. No, what they'll do is point at the area that really can knock us off course more than anything, and it's people. People. See, 
this, this, this won't be news to you either. You will, you will be failed by people. And you will be hurt by people. You will be disappointed by people. And so just, just to get something off all of our chests, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn and look at somebody that you came with or sitting nearby you right now. Okay? And I want you to just, I know your parents taught you this wasn't polite. I want you to take your pointer finger. Make sure it's the pointer finger, okay? And I just want you to point at them. And I want you to repeat after me. You can be real difficult. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now, now I want you to take your pointer finger and I want you to point it at you. And repeat after me, but I can be more difficult. Weird, it was a little quieter on that second one. You guys just aren't quite following yet. Isn't it true, not only have you been failed by, hurt by, disappointed by people, but you have failed, hurt, and disappointed people? Absolutely, absolutely. And it is the thing that will cause us to just cut and run more than anything else. In fact, there's a saying out there, and and we heard this a lot even in uh, leadership classes over at Denver Seminary, that people rarely quit an organization, especially the church. I mean, the, the church in people's minds, you might have a picture of the one you grew up in, but there's, there's this, we associate the church with Jesus, but it's so interesting and it's so ironic that oftentimes we will cut and run, not because of the organization, but because of people. Now, that's not even saying, that's not even saying it's a stay in there at all times, because I, I know enough stories in here, and even from my own life, that there were some toxic things that you just had to get away from. You absolutely had to. But what I want to get at this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I believe what Paul is getting at is that there is a staying power that comes up and that really flourishes when we run into those people tensions that we're just bound to run into. Now, the reason that, I'm talk- that I want to talk about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 highlights this is because Paul, when he wrote the Corinthians, his letters, and he wrote them, they believe actually four letters, two of which we have in scripture. But one of them was just absolutely scathing, absolutely scathing. And for them, as they, as they you know, received all of this, some were, as we'll see in a bit, were very open to it, and some not so much. Some actually pointed the finger back at Paul and questioned whether his ministry really had any, any sort of substance to it whatsoever. And so I want us to just walk through 2 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning because it brings up a series of questions and choices that honestly, when we run into people tensions, they're good for us to hear. And they're choices that we, get, that we get put before us. Because you know what sin, what sin has done to all of us is it wants to take it sideways. And it wants to magnify it, and it wants to make the tension worse, and it wants to destroy and kill the relationship. And Paul, as he, as he talks through this, this relational tension that we're all bound to face, he brings up some questions. Well, it brought up questions for me, but he brings up some contrasts. And it's really, it's a contrast between what sin is trying to do when those people tensions come up and what God is up to when those tensions come up. And so let's look at the first one. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. Paul says this, make room for us, and, and notice where he says, in your hearts. Immediately, notice what he says. We have wronged no one. 
We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. Now, why would Paul have to say that on the heels of make room for us in your hearts? Why would Paul have to say that? Because they were saying these things about Paul. They're saying, look, that that letter you wrote us, the way we've watched you operate, Paul, we think, we think you're wrong. We think you're corrupt. We think you're out to exploit people. Now, I want you to just come to us for a minute. Isn't this what we do? When we see something that somebody does and we don't understand it, don't we become storytellers? And I mean, we're incredible storytellers, aren't we? And we come up with this narrative that it's just somehow I was completely innocent and they were completely wrong in all of it. And here's why. You've heard the phrase, especially in sports, somebody gets in your head. Yeah, they've gotten into, into your head. And for some of the Corinthians, Paul, his, the truth he was highlighting to them, he had somehow, he was in their heads, but not their hearts. He had gotten into their heads, not in their hearts. And he wasn't trying to talk trash or anything like that, like we see in, in sports these days when we think of the phrase getting in someone's head. But they, they just had formed a narrative. They formed a narrative, and they hadn't seen him in a while. And so when we haven't seen somebody in a while, when things are silent, our narratives tend to, they tend to kind of go downhill, don't they? Well, Paul. Paul had a different approach to it. See, for Paul, they remained in his heart. Here's how you know somebody's in your heart. Listen to what he says. Verse 3. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. Think about that. Okay? Some of you, you might have a specific face in mind right now. That you just, as we were pointing the finger at each other earlier, you wish they could have just been sitting there. And you wish you could have just said, you are so difficult. Pretty much all the time, right? But Paul says, I would live or die with you. When you think of that face, (laughs) could you live with them? Could you die with them? I mean, that's a little uncomfortable, isn't it? Yeah, it's tough. He goes on. Verse 4, I've spoken to you with great frankness. In other words, there's been a lot of candor. I've just said it. I take great pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. See, while the Corinthians have this narrative going on, some of them about Paul, Paul's got them in his heart. And see, this is the thing that happens to us. We, We get so good at telling stories that oftentimes the stories we tell ourselves can overwrite the stories we've built together especially in the church. And so the first choice, the first question that we've got to ask ourselves is as you come across, whether it's past, present, future, when people tensions come up, we've got to ask ourselves, are they in my head only or are they in my heart? In my head or in my heart? I came across a little quiz not too long ago that um, I want to share with you and I, I want to see if you do the exact same thing that I did. It says this, It says, suppose it's time to elect a new national leader. There are three candidates, and here are some facts about each. Candidate A, he associates with crooked politicians and consults with astrologists. He's had two mistresses. He also chain smokes and drinks eight to ten martinis a day. Wow, okay. Candidate B, he was kicked out of office twice, sleeps until noon, used opium in college, and drinks a bottle of whiskey every single evening. Candidate C, had faithful service to their country, 
Vegetarian, doesn't smoke, drinks an occasional beer, has never committed adultery. And it says, which of these candidates would be your choice? Everybody got one in mind? All right. Who said candidate A? Oh, just because you guys all know where I'm going with this. Who said B? Who said C? Okay. Candidate A, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Candidate B, Winston Churchill. Candidate C, Adolf Hitler. Whoa. See, now I know what you're thinking right now. Nathan, that's not fair. You gave us such limited information, but that is exactly the point. Isn't it true the best we can do is operate with very limited information about one another? And what makes it worse is we're our own editors. So I pick and choose the information I want to include or exclude about you and about people, don't we? We all do this. And yet what Paul is getting at is this thing that he had experienced in his own experience with Jesus Christ. That no matter what I see, no matter what bits of information I have, make room. We got to make room for one another in our hearts because that's exactly what Jesus did. We we talk about unconditional love. It is without conditions. Sorry, I will never do that to you again, okay? He moves on. A, A second choice, second question that's good for us to ask ourselves when people issues come up. Verse 5, he says, for when we came into Macedonia, so now he's going to give them a glimpse. They haven't seen him in months. He's going to give them a glimpse of what life has been like for him. Because we tend to think robotic, right? When somebody has wounded us, uh, they were just, they were like this machine that woke up this morning with the sole purpose of making my life miserable, right? He said, for when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. Tired, harassed, conflict, fear. All in one sentence. Paul goes on. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. In other words, Paul had written this scathing letter, and he's just waiting to hear, and waiting to hear, and waiting to hear. And you've done this, right? You've sent a text to somebody, and it was just silence back. And what do you start doing? Start fretting a little bit. You start going, oh no, how did they take it? How is this going to go? Except there was no text messaging. And so Paul couldn't just wait a few minutes. It wasn't just a day. It wasn't just a week. This was months until he saw Titus, who had gone to the Corinthians, and he'd gotten to hear their hearts, and he'd gotten to hear how they would respond to Paul's scathing letter. He goes on, he told us about your longing for me. Your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. You know, when you you sent that message, you had that conversation, you're not sure how it was going to be received, when you finally get back that somebody's heart was soft toward you, and you know that sensation? You just go, okay, all this time I was so worried. All this time, there was so much angst. All this time, I had this this imaginary conversation going in my head, and I was preparing for the worst. And Paul, his joy was greater than ever, because some of the Corinthians had actually heard his message. Now, you look through these words. No rest, harassed, conflict, fear, comfort, joy. 
See, this is not robotic language. This is the language of human experience. This is the language of hearts reciprocating to him. And so there's another question for us. When you think about that person who maybe spoke harshly to you, that maybe they wounded you in some way, what do you picture? And when you haven't talked to them, do you see a villain? Or do you see somebody who's vulnerable? Because what we just learned from Paul is that Paul, who we think of as bold and brash, and he's just like taking the world by storm for Jesus, he also was vulnerable. He also had a tender heart. There's a book that I know many of you have read from C.S. Lewis. It's called Screwtape Letters. And in Screwtape Letters, what you've really got are, you've got these two demons that are having a conversation. And the whole book is centered around, there's a new Christian that one of them has been assigned to work on. And to, and to just get so discouraged that he eventually leaves his faith. And I want to read you a, a little bit, a section of what C.S. Lewis wrote. And then the part I really want you to see is going to be up on the screen. But listen to this. One demon talking to another. He says, one of our great allies in our endeavor is the church itself. When, when your patient, he calls him his patient. When your patient gets to his pew and looks around him and he sees that selection of his neighbors that he has previously avoided, you want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind go back and forth between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. Provided that any of the... Uh, Provided that any of those neighbors sing out a tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that this religion must, some, excuse me, must therefore be somehow ridiculous. At this present stage, he has an idea of Christians in his mind, which he su- supposes to be spiritual, but which in fact is largely pictorial. His mind is full of togas and sandals and armor and bare legs. That's our new dress code, by the way. Um, and the mere fact that the other people in church wear modern clothes is a real, though of course an unconscious, difficulty to him. Work hard then on the disappointment or anticlimax, which is certainly coming to him in his first few weeks. The enemy, and keep in mind these are demons, so he's referring to God here. Our enemy allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when the boy who has been enchanted in the nursery by stories from the Odyssey buckles down to really learning Greek. It occurs when lovers have gotten married and begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming, aspiration, to laborious doing. And then I want you to, I want you to read this. I have been writing on the assumption that the people in the next pew afford no rational ground for disappointment. Of course, if they do, if the patient knows that the woman with the absurd hat is a fanatical bridge player, that's a biggie, isn't it? All right. Is a fanatical bridge player or the man with squeaky boots, a miser and extortioner, then your task is so much easier. All you then have to do is keep out of his mind the question, if I, being what I am, that is with all my flaws, can consider that I am in some sense a Christian, why should the vices of other people in the next pew prove that their religion or Christianity is just hypocrisy and convention. Now, I know that was a lengthy selection, but here's the idea. Too often, isn't it true that it's easier to just think of somebody as as a villain through and through than to be reminded of the vulnerabilities of the human heart that every single one of us deals with? 
Absolutely. That's question number two. Question number three comes up in the next few verses. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, that one that was just so harsh, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. You know what Paul's saying here? Sorry, not sorry. If you've ever quoted that, you're actually quoting the Bible there, okay? Sorry, I'm I'm just not sorry for what I said. It actually felt good to say it, okay? He said, though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. So you know what repentance is? I know that's a word that for for some, that can be a very scary thing. You know what repentance is? It's hurt. But it's a certain kind of hurt. And as Paul will go into, it's a hurt that actually produces something. It's a hurt that God is in and God is using. You want to know how you know somebody loves you? Do you want to know how you know if you actually love somebody? When you can say to yourself that I know that my relationship with God is more important to them than my view of them. And you know you love somebody. If you can look at somebody and you can say, your relationship with Jesus Christ is more important to me than your view of me. And that's a hard place to get to, isn't it? That's a really hard place to get to. But this is what Paul is getting at. He's saying, listen, goal number one for me is not for you to like me. It's for you to love him. And that you would know that he loves you so so much. So this is why Paul can say, so I'm sorry, not sorry. And then he goes into what this sadness looks like. Verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See, one kind of sorrow knows that it's actually missing out on the life that God offers, and the other sorrow is worried that it's missing out on what the world offers. And so the third question, third choice we got to make, whatever sadness, whatever anger, whatever hurt, whatever pain has developed as a result of tension with people, we got to ask ourselves, what kind of sorrow is coming up inside me? Is this godly sorrow or is it worldly sorrow? Right? Parents, don't we, don't we say this to our kids? Are you, are you sorry because you're actually sorry or are you just sorry because you got caught? I remember one night in high school, only happened one time ever, but I got left out. I got left out. Actually, it happened a lot, a lot, okay? I remember I had heard about a group of friends, and it was kind of after or in the middle of the fact, that had gone and done something, and they were with, it was without me. And so I'm sitting at home on a Friday night, like, just would love to go find something to do and would love to be with my friends, and they all went, and not Nathan. I wasn't there. And I remember just sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, we can camp out in what we're missing out on, right? Because I just want to be loved. I just want to be, I just want to be respected. I just, want to, I just want to be included, right? And I remember sitting there that night and just going, oh my goodness. And I could sit here and I could, I could fret. I could just sit here and fret and fret and fret over what I'm missing out on. It would be, a, as I read this, a worldly sorrow or, or, 
And, and I can tell you this, this is the first time that I seriously at length opened up my Bible. And yes, that night God was pretty much last resort, and yet he was faithful even then to remind me that he is a God who walks with us even in the sorrows. And it produces something. It produces something. He leads into it in verse 11. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you've proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Did you catch that list? I mean, it's a lot of things, but they're all, they're internal things. And this should cause us to ask ourselves, what's coming up? You know, when tension comes up with people, what comes up in me? Is it this list? Is it defensiveness? Is it anger? Is it loneliness? What is it? And Paul He says, when I hear how you responded to the way I wounded you, I know this is godly sorrow. I know God has cut you to the heart and he's caused you to come back to him. And then what he says next is for for those of you in here that you're, you're maybe concerned, Paul is saying every relationship, even the toxic ones in your life, even the most damaging ones that you just have to be in there for. And so... Paul actually clarifies what he's not saying here. Listen to this, verse 12. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party. Paul says, you want to know what's going on here? You want to know what relational tension with people does? It actually has nothing to do with the people and who was right and who was wrong. And this one was 80% right. And this one was 20% right. Has nothing to do with that. He says, but rather, I wrote to you, but rather that before God, before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. Did you catch that? Paul's pointing them back to what's really going on here. I know it looks like the mess of people stuff, but what's really going on is God is faithfully drawing you back and drawing you back to him. That when we get right with him, we gain clarity with them. And so another question comes up in the midst of the tension. Am I wanting to get right with him or look right to them? See, there's this defensiveness that rises up, right? We so want to straighten out how we look in the eyes of other people. And Paul says, no, no, no. This happened. This happened so that you'd be right right here. Let me read that last part of the verse again. <clears throat> Before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. Three times in these two verses, you know what word he uses? See. See. You know what God is doing? He's making clear where we are with him whenever things get sideways with them. Now, it produces something. It actually produces action. Maybe the best way to describe this is years ago, um, I'm sure you've all had the experience, you buy raw chicken from the grocery store, and we now schedule it in our house because trash day is Thursday. Have you ever thrown a, a, a styrofoam container, an empty styrofoam container with raw chicken juice in the trash? 
it is the most foul smell in the world within like an hour. Okay, so I've like quadruple bagged that thing before. I've put baking soda in there before just to minimize the smell. Then I've put it out in the can in the garage. And it never fails. Within 24 hours, it is just rotten. It's absolutely disgusting. And so Kara's like, well, then put the can outside because we keep it in our garage. So put it outside. The next day, there are like vultures and bears and eagles. And I mean, it's just, it's a zoo out there, okay? Because they're just drawn to this smell. Okay, so one week this happened, and I think this was a week, Lainey was still in diapers, and so her diapers were in there as well, and our trash day is Thursday, and I woke up, it was one of those rare days that I slept in, and truck, garbage trucks have a certain sound, and I went, that's the garbage truck, and I'm hoping they're going around the opposite side of the cul-de-sac, and they're circling by, I got up, looked out the window, and he's driving away, now, When you've had that odor in your house for a day, it's too long. And I suddenly realize it's another week. It's another week of this. And right then, right there, the indignation, earnestness, everything Paul just listed, I I remember going, never again. Never, ever again will I miss trash day. I mean, because that smell is so foul. But this is exactly what happens. This is exactly what God is doing when he wants to bring us back to him. When people tension comes up, He says, I don't want you to live with the stench of this anymore. I don't want you to deal with it. I want you to come back. See, what what all of these point us to is really this, that when people tensions come up, there is a very real choice that comes up within us. And Paul says, the choice is not what you think it is. It is not cut the relationship or go back to the relationship with the, the person. It's, it can cut the relationship or it can cut the heart. And you know what God's method is for bringing us back to him over and over and over? It's not cutting the relationship. You may never go back to that relationship, but God's concerned with right here. Can I allow it to cut my heart in a way that it produces a sorrow, that thing we avoid so much that we could come back to him? Maybe I'd say it this way. An inclination to run from them is an invitation to return to him. See, that's really what Paul's pointed at. Paul's main concern, whether they ever talk to him again or not, was, are they right with him? Are we right with him? The inclination to run from people is an invitation to return to God. Years ago, Years ago, there was a family whose, uh, their kids were part of the youth group back when we were actually in the youth group. And I remember it was around 2002 or 2003. There was just, um, just the way some things went here at the church, um, some people got wounded and there was very much one side against this side and, um, people got hurt. And within the span of just a few weeks, it just, a large number of people went out the door. And that included this, this one specific family who their kids, we'd always been close in youth group and they moved on and they left. Well, years later, I see this lady, I'm just out and I was over at the mall and I see the mom of this family and we're catching up and I said, Hey, how are you doing? How's everything going? And she did the fine. We're good. Everything's good. And then she stopped and she just starts crying. She said, we're not good. And this is years later. We're not good. I said, what's going on? And she said, my heart so badly wants to come back to West Bulls. 
And my husband, we were hurt so badly. He has swore we will never walk through the doors again. Ever, ever, ever. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, this is same marriage, same circumstances, same hurt, and yet two hearts going the complete opposite directions. And one was convinced that that there's a narrative and, and that the other side from all those years ago, they were the villains and they were just, they were not having it. It was never gonna be an option. And yet for this woman, as I'm listening to her, I'm going, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. She, she knows that jumping from church to church to church to church to church wasn't gonna be the answer for them. And yet they live in the same house. How do you navigate that? And Paul nails it. He said, the starting point, you want to know what the start of it is? It is not trying to fix things here. It's coming back right here. And saying, Lord, this cuts my heart, and I'd rather not go through this, but I know it can produce something. Because just two chapters before this, what did Paul say? God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And that starts with reconciliation with him first. That's what that tells us every single week that we gather. That's what happened at the cross. And so there are three words that I want you to remember or write down. They're all closely related. So I, hopefully this is easy to remember. Attention, tension, and intention. As you walk out of here, attention, tension, and intention. So you want to know what these questions really get at and what Paul is really getting at here is that what it appears to be going on is not really what's going on. That if, if we live by faith and not by, by sight, then we can see the actual movement of what's going on in front of us whenever people issues come up. And it's this, that God's hand is at work. If you walk through this passage, it's really interesting. For all the Paul and them relationship there is, God's hand is right there in the middle of all of it. God is producing something. And so our attention has the shift. It's got to shift, and we've got to remember that it's not faces that are the enemy. As Paul says elsewhere, it's not flesh and blood. It's powers and principalities at work. That's the real opposition. Second word is tension. Tension. That's one of those things that um, I love to tell people, just stay in the tension. Walk in the tension. But that is like the worst advice to hear. I hate hearing that advice. We all hate hearing it. And yet God does something in the tension, growth, growth is, is attained in tension. And so rather than running after comfortable, what if we just stayed in it? Because tension is really an opportunity to trust. It is always an opportunity to trust, and it doesn't feel good. And like Paul, it might be months, it might be years before you see a resolution to it. But you can trust. You can trust that God's hand is in it, in the middle of it. And finally, intention. Intention. If you go back through this passage, you see that God's intention or Paul's intentions were godly ones. Paul wanted to bring them back to their heavenly father. And you even read in there that God intended something through this. And so can we just, could we all as a body do a favor for one another? Can we assume godly intentions? Can we just assume godly intentions even when it doesn't look like it? And it very well may not be. It may not be. But you can know that God has godly intentions through it. He absolutely does. The inclination 
to run from them is an invitation to return to him. And so as the worship team comes back up, let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you. And um, as someone in my own life reminded me, the thing that we need most is relationship. And yet the hardest thing to maintain is relationship with other people. Because we so misunderstand one another. We so get going with our own narratives. And so, Lord, give us a heart for one another that you have for us. That ministry of reconciliation, let it come from the same place that it came for Paul. That out of his own experience and his own relationship with you, we would go and we would be reconciled with others. That we would bring that into the world and invite others to be reconciled with you as well. Lord, illuminate in our hearts, illuminate in our hearts where uh, maybe we've run down the road with a narrative. But more than anything, illuminate in our hearts that if our heart has been cut deeply by you, that we can, we can interpret that as godly sorrow. And we ask that it would be a sorrow that you would use to, to just grow and produce a crop and a harvest of righteousness for you and for your kingdom. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.